Hello, Obsassinax. It's so good to talk to you. I am glad to be back in front of the microphone. I feel like it has been a super long week. We are in election week 2020. It is 13.17, so 1.17 p.m. on November 4th that I am recording this, and we still do not have a result for our presidential election. So, we're hanging in there, right? Let's talk about a little bit of Outlander to get us through until we get some sort of news. But before we get into this week's episode 211, Vengeance is Mine, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Also, if you haven't had a chance, make sure to head over to the Sassanac Files blog. We are going strong on our book club. I am getting ready to release part three this week. It is going to be the first half of On the Road, that section, lots of good stuff in there. We've got the wedding, the wedding night, all kinds of goodies that I enjoyed talking about and rereading again for the first time in over a year. So I was really just enjoying this time actually in Droughtlander to get some stuff accomplished and I feel like I'm making some headway. In other news, I also got my American edition of Clanlands yesterday, and I am so stoked to dip into that. I've already heard some feedback from some of my friends, and they are loving it. They said it's hilarious, so I am really looking forward to getting into it. Also, I want to take a moment to ask you guys to please, 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 if you like what you are listening to with the Sassanac Files, please take just a little bit of time to leave a rating and review on your favorite listening platform to let others know what you think of the Sassanac Files. And with all of that out of the way, let's talk about Season 2, Episode 11, Vengeance is Mine. And let me just say that this episode kind of sneaks up on me. It's one of those that I... (laughs) I'm like, well, a lot plot-wise doesn't happen, and it kind of sidesteps the story. I feel like with Preston Pans, it's ramping up to something, and then it kind of just falls off. The first part of this episode deals with the progression, or lack thereof, of the Jacobite army, and then it kind of just meanders in the lovely way that Diana's books so often do. And you're like, okay, what is the point of this? And then it all comes full circle and you're like, ooh. And I find that so fitting because Diana Gabaldon wrote this episode. It is the first episode she wrote for the screen. The second one is Journey Cake from season five, which was also a really great episode. But I always enjoy Diana's take on the television show because for us book readers, It's a wonderful blend of the characters that we know and love from the books versus the characters that we know and love from the show. You can see her bringing in all of these little tidbits that aren't necessarily picked up on by the writers. It's so hard to explain, but it's just like Diana understands these people that are cohabitating in her head. And she can blend them really well with the characters that Sam Hewen and Katrina Balfe and Duncan Lacroix have all created in the show universe. So it's always really interesting to see Diana's take on how she's going to write an episode for television. 
So for that reason alone, I really enjoy this episode. She has such a talent with how she writes. She's a funny person by nature, and she's one of those people that can actually write humor really, really well. And I think that that's evident in this episode. It really stands out to me as an episode that she wrote just for the sheer amount of times that I laughed in this episode. Really the only other writer in the universe of Outlander that does that for me is Ira Stephen Bear. There are a couple episodes that Ron Moore wrote that get me giggling a little bit, but Diana's episodes are the ones that I'm always like, oh my god, yeah, that, I recognize that. Those characters are the ones that I know. It's always a nice change of pace to see Diana writing and getting a taste of our book characters in the midst of the TV show, because I feel like it's something that television watchers don't necessarily pick up on, but if you've read the books, you're like, oh... It just feels unique and different from other pieces that different writers from the show have written. So let's get into the plot a little bit of this episode. It's been a few months since Preston Pans and the Jacobite army has progressed farther south into England. They are currently encamped in northern England when this episode picks up. They've kind of hit a lull. They're not really sure what to do, and shock of all shocks, there is disagreement in the ranks of the Jacobite army on what the next step should be. The irony of it all is that the people that are disagreeing are not Lord George Murray and John O'Sullivan, as we had previously discussed last week. In fact, Lord George and John O'Sullivan are actually in agreement that the army should withdraw from England and go back across the border. And this is for a couple reasons, primarily because the English army at this point numbers around 30,000. England has pulled their forces from France and kind of the scattered areas that all of these smaller British armies have been. They've brought their forces back home and they're ready to deal with the Scottish problem. So the problem is that now that all of these forces are brought back, The British army numbers about 30,000 troops. In Preston Pans, it was a much smaller amount of troops, and Charlie and the Jacobites were able to catch Cope off guard with their night maneuvers. So now the Jacobites are faced with the problem of being in England. They haven't gained the support that they had hoped for, so that is also a massive issue. The Southern Scots and the Northern English have not risen to the call, so to speak. We're looking at a difference of about 25,000 men. That's how small the Jacobite army is compared to the British. They only have 5,000 in their army. As any good leader would, he's like, look, if we run into this army, we're not winning and it's going to ruin us. So this is kind of what Murray and O'Sullivan are trying to convince of Charlie. And Charlie is not having any of it. He's like, this is intolerable. And I would rather be run through with a British bayonet and be buried in an unmarked grave than turn back after we've come this far. Because Charlie's goal was to march to London and take the city of London, even if they couldn't hold it. And... 
Jamie's on board with this. He is the only person that comes to the support of Charlie, which to Charlie comes across as James being a good friend. But in reality, you see, especially when Jamie comes out of the meeting with Charlie and Murray and O'Sullivan, that he just hugs Claire and he apologizes. And you know that it was the game plan that they had talked about that Jamie would do his damnedest to convince the Jacobite leaders that they needed to march on London because that would be different than what happened in Claire's history books. And that if they could march on London, if even if they didn't hold it, that would mean the history could be changed, even if it's a relatively small change. So Jamie's just really torn up about it. He's done literally everything he can think to do at this point, and it is not enough. He has to break the news to his men that he's going home and he tries to put a smile on their face and say, don't worry, I'll see you safe home to Lollybrock. We'll be home for winter and we'll be back at it in the spring. And then he turns to Claire and he says, and I'll see you safe no matter what, Sassanac. And this kind of goes into this chain of scenes with Jamie where you see him reconciling himself to something. And if you don't know what you're looking at, it may be hard to place what's going through his head. But there are certain versions of the scene where he's praying over Claire while she's sleeping, where it translates the Gallic for you. Um, The Netflix version is not one of those. I think the Stars version might be one that translates. But essentially what he's saying, he's asking God to look over Claire and protect her and the child that she may one day bear and keep her safe this day and every day. And I really love this tender little scene between Jamie and Claire. Claire rolls over and she's like, what were you saying? And he says, nothing, you know, being shy, not wanting to be cheesy about it. And then he just says to her, There's not much I can say waking that won't sound daft or foolish, but I can say things while you sleep and your dreams will ken the truth of them. It's so poetic. Jamie is just a master with words. And really all he's saying is that my hopes and dreams for what we would have, I don't need to voice them to you. Like you don't need to hear them as long as you feel them and realize them deep down that that's how I feel. Like, that's what's important. And as Jamie is holding Claire while they sleep, he's really reconciling himself to the fact that he may have to make a tough choice here. We talked about it in Paris. He said the reason that he let Blackjack live is because he wanted Claire to have a place to go if something happened to him. And he made her promise that she would go. So we're fast approaching that time. And I think Jamie realizes that, that he's trying so hard to do what he can do, but it's not looking good. And so I think this is really the start of that preparation. He's had some time to think for the first time. Up until this point, from the time they've got back to Paris until now, really, it's just been go, go, go. He hasn't had any time to digest 
or really think about his next move. It's all been a very reactive experience. It's very sad in a lot of ways to see him internally processing it. And it's something that's so subtle. Sam Hewen does a fantastic job. He's the king of facial expressions. In the earlier seasons, voiceover is very heavy in this series because it's a first person series. You're meant to be in the characters' heads. But the beauty of having such wonderful actors is that you don't always need the voiceover. Sometimes their face is enough. Their reactions are so amazing that you can tell what they're thinking without having to have it explicitly thrown out there that, and this is what I was thinking in this moment. It's really great. It's such a talent of Sam's and Katrina. I think we really see her evolve as an actor in this series. In the beginning, I'm not so sure that that was there. But as she grows as an actress, especially from seasons three and on, I feel like she is just so great. I mean, she has her moments in season two, don't get me wrong. Faith and Dragonfly and Amber were two of her shining moments in this series. But it's definitely worth saying that we have less voiceovers as we get later on into the series. And there's a reason for that that the producers didn't feel it was necessary anymore because the actors embodied their characters so well that they told the story all on their own. It's not that those voiceovers weren't written in. It's that when they got to the cutting room floor, they're like, you know what, we don't need this. And so they went on without it, which I applaud the actors so much because it is really hard to do to be given a line in a script, given a page, And saying, Jamie looks anguished because internally he's feeling this, that, or the other. And to interpret that in a way where your audience is going to understand, that takes talent. There are a few episodes in later seasons that really rely on that strength for their actors. That stars realizes what they have, without a doubt. And they are using it to their full advantage. So, bravo. Bravo to the cast. Getting back on track with the plot. I feel like I've sidetracked a lot already and we're only 15 minutes in. (laughs) Um, Murray spirits Charlie away, as Dougal put it, and orders Jamie and Dougal and Claire north to Inverness to secure winter provisions for the Jacobite army. (laughs) And Claire's like, with what money? And they're like, oh, uh, well, O'Sullivan says that, of course, the prince's supporters will provide on credit, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And Claire's like, oh, of course. You know, knowing full well that they're on a fool's errand, nobody is going to give shelter and supplies to an army for the entire Scottish winter without some sort of collateral or coin. It's just a fool's errand. Scotland is a poor country anyway, and yes, the Highland hospitality is alive and well, but Highland hospitality for a man and his wife is a lot different than Highland hospitality for 5,000 men. So, yeah, Jamie, Claire, Dougal, they are all perfectly aware that they are being 
exiled, as Dougal put it. Murray and O'Sullivan know that Jamie has way too much sway over Charlie, and they want to get Jamie and Charlie as far away from each other as possible. So off to Inverness we go. And man, if this isn't a shit fest. <laughs> they get ambushed by the Redcoats, and Rupert is gravely injured. He ends up surviving, but he takes a musket ball to the eye. Ugh. And it's like Claire said, you're lucky this didn't penetrate your brain. I don't know how it didn't, to be honest. I mean, I know that musket balls don't have as much firepower as a modern day rifle, but I mean, it was still a gun and it still shot a big piece of lead into a person. I just, oh, it makes me cringe. And when she was digging that musket ball out of him, ooh, and it made me think, it's been a while since I have read Dragonfly and Amber, so this may be wrong. But I believe that Rupert actually died from his wounds in the book. I seem to remember a mercy killing by Dougal, and I'm pretty sure that it was Rupert that he killed. But to give you a little context, in the book, this whole church situation, taking sanctuary, happened after the first battle of Falkirk. And Jamie comes looking for Claire. She's hiding with a bunch of other men in the church. And they end up getting cornered by some redcoats. Similar situation, not entirely the same. Um, and to put you into context of what time of year it is and when it is, it's around the First Battle of Falkirk. There are a couple of really great things about this scene in the church. The primary one that I found fascinating was the argument between Jamie and Claire. Because Jamie and Claire have their disagreements a lot of the time, but they don't argue in front of other people. It's more of a, we'll present a united front, and then we can talk about this behind closed doors. However, not a lot of closed doors to have arguments behind in the middle of an 18th century stone church with a thatched roof. It's just the way it is. So, Jamie, Lord help us, is convinced that the only way out of this is to give himself up. And I was just thinking to myself, guys, I feel like we've been here before. I'm getting a huge sense of deja vu right now. <laughs> Jamie's got a price on his head and he's going to sacrifice himself to save everybody else. Wentworth prison, anybody? Ringing a bell? <laughs> and I love, love how Dougal says, oh, stop being a bloody hero. <laughs> I think that's the one and only thing I will ever agree with Dougal McKenzie on. <laughs> and Claire said, wait, there's got to be another way. And then she just starts screaming for help. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and she's like, I'm an English woman. They won't fire the place when I'm inside, which makes a lot of sense. They're not going to kill an innocent British citizen to smoke out a bunch of Scots. It's just not going to happen, especially a woman. She says, they'll take me and let you guys go in peace. Use me to bargain with. And he said, 
I am not doing this, Claire. Like, it is not happening. I'm not giving you up. And everybody else at this point, Dougal, Murta, Rupert, they're all like, you know what? This is actually a valid plan. Because otherwise, we're not getting out of here. We can't fight, which is Dougal's option. He's like, you're not surrendering. Either we're fighting our way out of this, or Claire is giving herself up. But you're you're not giving yourself up, Jamie. Because he said, it's a choice between the hangsman or the headsman this time. There is no walking away from this if you give it up. Because he's read Jamie at this point. He's a known Jacobite a very trusted and close person to Prince Charlie. He's got a pretty nice price on his head. It's not 10 pounds sterling like it was way back when. You know, Jamie being stubborn, he keeps on refusing. He's like, I'm not giving you up. And Claire turns to him and says, yes, you will, you stubborn Scott. (laughs) And then she says something so fascinating. She says, am I not Lady Brock to Rock? Are these men not my responsibility too? He kind of just takes a step back and you see it hit him that she takes her responsibility as seriously as he takes his and that whether he likes it or not, Claire's path forward may be the only path forward that allows everyone to escape from this situation unharmed. So reluctantly, he agrees to it, but you can see It's eating him alive inside. Janie and Claire, I mean, I feel like it's pointing out the obvious that they love each other, but Janie has this fierce belief that he is Claire's protector. And when he's put in situations where he can't protect her, it is literally the worst feeling for him. He feels completely helpless. And James Fraser does not like to feel helpless. I don't know. It just breaks my heart. because, And this is when, like I said earlier, Sam's face is enough. Voiceovers aren't necessary. Silence is perfectly fine. Because when you have a fantastic actor like Sam Hewen, you don't need to fill time with words. You know what's happening in his head. That look of complete anguish on his face as he watches Dougal walk out with Claire in his arms and he watches out the window completely powerless as he hands Claire over to the Redcoats. That's enough to see the look on his face. So I felt like this was a great scene. This was Jamie signaling that he views Claire as his equal, that She has responsibilities just like he does. And he recognizes his responsibility, but he never really thought of Claire having the same responsibility. And so when she points it out to him, it all just kind of clicks. Like I said, whether he likes it or not, he realizes that he has to let her do this. So then it's all about getting Claire back, right? This is kind of where we sidestep and we're like, what does this have to do with the plot? (laughs) Like, I don't feel like this is getting us any closer to Culloden, people. (laughs) Then the the lights come on and we see that Claire is being taken to the Duke of Sandringham. He kind of just disappeared after the dinner party in Paris that was an absolute disaster that Myrta and Jamie got arrested for. And we never really heard much more about him. And now he's reappearing. 
him and Claire have this antagonistic relationship. It probably all started out when Claire threatened to expose that he was a Jacobite and kind of got worse from there. I don't know. Part of me just really... I mean, Claire, yeah, is kind of a bitch to him sometimes, but never really did anything to actively get him in trouble, you know? And I just want to scream, what the hell did these two ever do to you, man? <laughs> like, really? <laughs> because he does a lot of terrible things to them. And as I'm processing it, it's not necessarily that they personally did something to him to warrant his actions. It's just the fact that he doesn't have a conscience. Sandringham does what Sandringham needs to do to save Sandringham. <laughs> it's not about anybody else. It's all about him and everybody else's collateral damage and covering his own ass. He's just a fascinating character for that reason. Like nothing that you can do or say appeals to his sympathies. It's simply a matter of, is it going to benefit him? If not, oh well, too bad. Really, this entire section of the episode where Claire is at Belmont House, it's really a giant chess match between Sandringham and Claire, one of them constantly trying to get information out of the other. And how much information are you going to give away in the process of getting what you want? Let's take the note, for instance, that Claire gets to Jamie. Claire knows that Monroe is looking for Jamie and he's going to be coming for her at Belmont House. However, she wasn't counting on the ass load of soldiers outside the front door. And she wasn't counting on the fact that Sandringham is the duke that owns Belmont House. So there are a lot of unknowns for Jamie right now, and Claire doesn't want him walking into a trap. So she needs to get word to him. Therefore, Sandringham needs to know a little bit of the situation. But how much is Claire going to let him know? On the other hand, Unbeknownst to the viewer at the time, Sandringham's goal is to get in good with the British again because he's been in a lot of trouble. He's spent some time in the Tower of London for his questionable loyalties. And so at the moment, he's doing whatever he can to get back in the king's good graces. So he's flying Claire for information saying, oh, well, I want to go with you. You must have known I'm always a Jacobite. I'm on your side. So you guys can just take me with you and everything will be okay. I'm really glad that Claire recognized that nothing that comes out of the Duke of Sandringham's mouth ever is the honest to God truth. <laughs> Claire agrees and writes this note, but she writes it in Gallic and she says, well, unless you totally trust your messenger to not get caught by the English, I'm writing in Gaelic because if it's in English, we can just take our chances. And if he gets caught, we'll both be hung. Making it seem like she trusts him. She just doesn't trust the messenger and doesn't want to get caught. In reality, once Jamie opens up the note from Monroe, we find out that yeah, Claire didn't really trust Sandringham, and in fact, she's given away some of the keys to Sandringham's trap and keeping Jamie safe in the process. 
it's really interesting to see this back and forth between Sandringham and Claire. Made even more interesting when Mary shows up. Little Mary Hawkins. We haven't seen her in a few episodes. She has grown into this gorgeous young woman. So she was like 15, 16 when we saw her in Paris. It's been about a year, maybe a little longer now. So she is 16, 17. She's really maturing into this beautiful young woman. And we find out that the men in her life are at it again, trying to match her with this wealthy merchant who, shock, shock, happens to be a loyalist. And Sandringham is Mary's godfather. Like all of these things are dominoing into place. And a lot of things are making sense now, especially for Claire as she's piecing it all together. Because if Sandringham's goddaughter marries a loyalist, then by extension, Sandringham is connected to a loyalist and looks a lot better in the crown's eyes. The more loyalist connections he has, the better it looks. So it's all about perception here. That's all that this marriage is for Mary. And unbeknownst to us while we're watching this episode, Mary has her own reasons for not wanting this marriage to go through. Yet another useful little nugget that is kind of thrown our way in this episode. But above all, the most interesting thing and the biggest closer for this episode is that we find out Sandringham is the one responsible for the attack on Mary and Claire in Paris that resulted in Mary's rape. I'll be the first to admit, when I first watched this episode, I was flabbergasted. Like, I just assumed that it was straight up the Comte, and that was that. I didn't really think about anybody else being involved. And yes, directly speaking, it is the Comte that was responsible for it, but Sandringham agreed to it and enabled it. It was his men that did the dirty work. He could have said no, but he didn't because he owed the Comte money and didn't have any money to pay the debt. So he offered his services instead and kind of had to do it despite, I mean, he didn't have to, which is the whole dilemma of this. He did it anyway, and that's what sucks. Yeah, this guy Danton, Claire recognizes the port wine stain on his hand. And it's like, when did you hire this guy? You know, putting the pieces together. And I almost feel like I would have kept my mouth shut if I was Claire because Sandringham seems to be working with her at this point. And it really isn't necessary for Sandringham to know that Claire is aware of the situation and that his servant raped Mary. So... I'm torn because, yes, we did need to know for sure that Sandringham knew about it and that it wasn't just the actions of Sandringham's servant independently. It's an interesting little web Diana is weaving here in this episode, as always. And the scene between Sandringham and Claire where he comes in and, you know, Claire confronts him about the attack and all of that. Sandringham just goes from weasel status to flat out villain. And he makes it perfectly clear that he has zero regrets about any of this. He even is like, 
Oh, yes, well, handing in Red Jamie goes far in correcting misperceptions and says, well, just think about it. If I hand over Red Jamie and his traitorous English wife, you two can be hung side by side. So romantic. Ugh, God. Like, Simon Callow does such a fantastic job in this scene. Hats off to him. It is literally within the span of, like, a three-minute scene that Sandringham goes from, like I said, weasel status to outright villain. It's it's that line of intention that he's doing this on purpose. It's not unintentional consequences that he's just dealing with anymore. It's directly, I am doing this for myself, and yes, you're going to die, and I don't give a fuck about it. <laughs> that's where Sandringham's at, and that's where it's, like, line crossed. Line is a dot. <laughs> okay, the line is a dot far on the horizon. That's how far past it he is. And yeah, man, he just blew me away in this scene, really. And I think that Claire realizes in this moment, too, who she's really dealing with. He has done a fantastic job of being two-faced up until this point. Sandringham has. But now all the cards are on the table. And she really realizes there's no way around this. Like, this dude's going to have to die at some point, I think, is pretty much her point. She's doing everything in her power to get away from him, knowing that Jamie is coming. And when she's locked in her room, she's really just desperate, pacing around. And Mary, Mary lets her out. I'm like, oh, Mary, thank God. Because, oh boy. Yeah, I mean... In the books, it wasn't so intense of a situation. It wasn't like life or death. In fact, Jamie, (laughs) Claire's asleep in her bed and Jamie comes in in the middle of the night type thing. (laughs) It's actually a quite funny scene in the books. And um, one of my favorites (laughs) when I think about it. Because (laughs) Jamie just kind of surprises Claire, but unintentionally Mary as well. It's it's so funny. Anyway, but we won't talk about that too much. But suffice it to say that the TV show is a little bit more intense, which makes sense because, you know, when you're facing time constraints, you can't always keep the little things. It has to be a little more fast paced to keep the viewer's attention, which I realized. So no hard feelings to... <laughs> the powers that be for making the decision to cut that. But Mary has this moment. It's a real, she has a couple of defining moments in this episode. The first is when she's begging Claire to take her with her when she escapes with Jamie. And Claire's like, okay, yeah, no problem. Just go down to the garden and talk to this beggar. His name's Hugh. And let him know that they're trying to trap Jamie and that he needs to stay away. And Mary is true to form. She's the Mary Hawkins that we have always known. And she looks at Claire and she's like, but I can't do that. Me go down by myself in my night clothes to find a filthy beggar in the garden. Like, no, I can't do that. And Claire turns to her and kind of snaps and says, fine. If you don't want to, then stay here and be quiet. You know, just 
very firm, putting her foot down, like, either grow a pair and help me get out of this place and come with me, or you stay here and keep your mouth shut and I will do it on my own. This is the difference between Mary and Claire, right? So fast forward to when Claire is in the kitchen with Sandringham. And I think Mary has come to the decision, you know what, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go after Claire. And so she goes to follow Claire and realizes that she kind of screwed herself over by waiting and that Claire's been caught in the act of trying to escape. So she makes up a story that she was hungry and gets food and goes back upstairs But instead of going to her room, she goes and finds Hugh and in turn warns Jamie. She makes a decision in that moment that Sandringham doesn't care about her. She's a means to an end. So why on earth should she think about anybody but herself and what is best for her? That's a defining moment for Mary. And so, yes, she gets caught again, but she's always been viewed as this little mouse that can't stick up for herself. So Sandringham doesn't even think about... Mary being the go-between. He just assumes she's being mousy little Mary and go to bed. But in reality, it is because of Mary that Jamie and Myrta find her and Claire so quickly and they get out unscathed. This whole final scene is really just phenomenal, but I'll break it down. So Claire gets free from Danton and Jamie takes his opportunity and Claire says, this is the man that attacked us in Paris. And you can just see Mary's face freeze. She's torn between being terrified and being angry. You know, Jamie's going to beat the hell out of this guy. He's been waiting for months to get his hands on this guy. And with all the shit that Jamie has dealt with in the past few months or the year, I think he's earned the right to take out his anger and frustration on somebody's face, let alone a rapist. So (laughs) he's like ready to pummel this guy into the stone flagging. (laughs) And then Danton says, I was only following orders. It was Sandringham that ordered me to do it. And Jamie is on the warpath now. And he gets Sandringham in a chokehold and... (laughs) Sandringham being the coward that he is, he's like, it wasn't me. It was the Comte. You know me, Jamie. I don't, I don't do these types of things, blah, blah, blah. Pleading for his life, essentially, he knows Jamie's going to kill him. And I missed it the first couple of times that I watched this episode, but Jamie glances up over Sandringham's head. And I never really, I, I don't know why it didn't, dawn on me but not this time but the last time that I watched the show I caught it and I was like "Ooh, he lets him go not because he thinks wiser of the decision to kill this guy but because he realizes that Myrta has the right more than Jamie does because of the decision that Jamie and Myrta had after Mary and Claire were attacked In the wine warehouse, Myrta has been out all night searching and he comes to Jamie and apologizes for not taking better care of Claire and their unborn child. Like this is the kind of monster that Sandringham is that he sanctioned 
a brutal attack on his goddaughter and a pregnant woman, okay? He legitimately did that because he owed somebody a debt. Like, oh my god, guys. I I can't even wrap my head around the level of selfishness and just pure evil. I, I, I can't even with it. And so Jamie leaves Myrta to it because he knows that if Myrta's to fulfill his promise, he's going to have to kill this guy. And in true Myrta fashion, man, he just whacks at that guy. I was, <laughs> I was watching this with my mom the first time that she watched it. And she was like, oh my God, she did not see this coming at all. So it was really funny to watch it with her. Going back to kind of the foreshadowing, I think I mentioned it when we talked about the episode La Dame Blanche. Perfect foreshadowing, okay? Perfect. Because after Mary and Claire were attacked and Claire was getting ready for the dinner party and Jamie's like, you know, we, I, we can cancel... I'll send all the guests away. It's okay. And Claire's like, no, we can't cancel. This is too important. And Jamie says, oh, I bet Sandraman's behind this. I should just go down there right now and cut off his head. And Claire said, no one is losing their head tonight. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Nobody was losing their head that night. But this night that we were talking about, someone for sure lost their head. And the epic part of all of that isn't necessarily that Sandringham got his, because he certainly did, and I was so glad. Like, yeah, it was gruesome. But man, if anybody deserved to get his head chopped off, it was that guy. (laughs) What really stood out to me in this moment was Mary and her defining moment, because she decided to empower herself and stop being the victim and take her vengeance on Danton. The man that took everything from her and made her feel inadequate and useless and like soiled goods. Yeah. The fact that she stabbed him. Talk about taking control of your own destiny. It really was an amazing moment for her. So, with all of this episode, we closed a lot of open doors. We have answers to things that happened six episodes ago, which was really good. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do on the greater bearing of the plot of this show, but it tied up a lot of loose ends. Talking about foreshadowing, if you will remember all the way back to... The very first episode of Outlander, Sassanac. One of the things that you hear kind of going on in the background when the Reverend and Frank are talking while Mrs. Graham is reading Claire's poem is how Sandringham might have been a patron of Black Jack Randall. And you hear the Reverend say, you know, I believe you're right. And then, you know, the the Duke of Sandringham died under very suspicious circumstances towards the end of blah, blah, blah. And it kind of fades off. So we knew 
Like, if you think about it and have that in your mind, you know that something is going to happen to Sandringham. But it's great that Claire and Jamie were right there in the thick of it and that they were the cause of this suspicious death was just really the icing on the cake, the cherry on top. And I really applaud the artistry and the craft because holy smokes, like I think the foreshadowing is my favorite part as far as like literary or storytelling devices in this series because seeds are planted so far in advance, you don't see it coming at all when it actually happens. Like we're talking books or seasons later that some of this stuff is finally coming to fruition and you have it back in the back of your head, but you don't always like so much else is going on that you're not keeping it in the forefront of your concentration when you're like, when is this going to happen? I know something's going to happen because 3000 pages ago, Diana had one single line about, you know, so that's, that's the beauty of a Diana Gabaldon and B reading her books. It's just, it's a treat and a journey every time you read it. Make sure to join me for my Outlander book club where we can talk about it a little bit more. So with a nice little bow wrapped up on the Paris story, finally, we have answers and we're moving forward to the Hail Mary next week, episode 212. We are getting closer and closer on a doomed march towards Culloden. And next week is when we really start to feel the pressure. So I am anxious to talk about that with you guys. I almost forgot performance of the episode and quote of the episode. So I'm tagging them on here at the end. But my performance of the episode actually goes to Duncan Lacroix. He did such a great job. And there's something about his the way that he does Myrta as an actor that really lends itself to how Diana writes. I feel like he shined in this episode and yeah, there was just something about the delivery of those one-liners. He had a couple of them and oh my God, (laughs) he's just so great. Particularly whenever him and Jamie were having their conversation, they're trying to translate what Claire wrote in Gaelic and then (laughs) He's like, it's all back to front. And Jamie's like, I'll give her lessons later. And then as Jamie's walking away, he says, she even misspelled help. (laughs) And it always makes me laugh. So I really just felt like Duncan did a fantastic job in this episode and made me laugh. And it was just really great. As for the quote of the episode, it is another Duncan LaCroix moment. It says, Tell me, does it ever occur to you that taking Claire to wife might not have been the wisest thing you ever did? (laughs) It's so true, and I know I mentioned it before, but Sam Hewen has even said it in interviews. Like, he really thinks it was probably the most disastrous thing that could have happened in Jamie's life. (laughs) Like, Claire literally just came in and took everything and turned it upside down, but I loved Jamie's reply, and he said, no, it doesn't ever occur to me. Like, I love my wife, and I don't care if she has turned everything upside down. I love her anyway, and let's go save her. (laughs) So that was my quote of the episode. Of course, my honorable mention was, again, all the one-liners. I mean, 
pretty much anything that made you giggle was a quote of the episode for me. But when Ross is letting Jamie and Dougal and all of them into the church and they're like supporting Rupert as they walk through the door. And he's like, what happened to him? And Rupert says, I decided to take a closer look at a musket ball. (laughs) That one is probably my honorable mention because it is pretty fantastic. So yeah, that is my performance of the episode and my quote of the episode. And I think that about wraps up this episode of the Sassnack Files. Make sure to join me next week when I talk 212 The Hail Mary. Until then, stay safe out there, guys. Have some patience with this election, and I will chat at you later. Have a good one.